Welcome to MFM Speaks Out. This is the official podcast of the nonprofit advocacy organization founded and led by Sarab Sadat Lajavardi called Musicians for Musicians. This monthly podcast is co-hosted by MFM members and musicians Adam Reifsteck and yours truly, Dawood Kringle. MFM seeks to bring together musicians from all disciplines, styles, traditions, and locations in the cause of their mutual self-betterment. Whether through education, networking, or political action, MFM's ultimate goal is to elevate the work of all musicians to the level of a true profession. In the final analysis, we seek to promote all conditions which benefit the musician's community and the music created by it, while opposing all those which do them harm. We encourage you to get involved by using the hashtags in social media, Unity in the Music Community, and Making Music is a Profession. We also invite you to visit our website at musiciansformusicians.org and to join our organization. If you'd like to become a supporter, you may do so by visiting our website. Again, that's musiciansformusicians.org. Today's interview is with saxophone master, composer, improviser, music educator, and music activist, Dave Liebman. But before we get to the interview, let's listen to some of Dave's music.
Welcome to uh, the MFM podcast mm-hmm. interview with the legendary Dave Liebman. Dave, thanks for uh, joining us. Pleasure to be here and for a very positive cause. Ah. I'm sure, we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking about it. Yeah, it's great to have you. For those of you who are just tuning in, Dave has been a legendary musician in the jazz world. He's played with pretty much the uh, A-list of all of the greats in jazz. He studied with Lenny Tristano, Charles Lloyd, graduated from New York University with a degree in American history. In the early 70s, you played with Jenya Raven and Ten Wheel Drive, and you had played with Elvin Jones, Chick Corea, Dave Holland, Miles Davis. The list just goes on and on and on. Uh, tell us uh, briefly about how you got started in the music business and how you got interested in music. Well, as a nine, ten year old, at the, um, uh, the wishes of my parents, I took piano lessons, like a lot of us did in that period. You know, we all, people had pianos in their living room instead of televisions or alongside a television. And uh, I took piano lessons, and my mother was very insistent that I take at least two years of piano before I could choose another instrument, which actually was a very wise decision musically. It ended up that no one, no one was grooming me to be a, a jazz musician, but uh, just to be musical and to understand music, which was a very positive thing for you know piano coming first. And I really was in love with early rock and roll, and 50s rock and roll had a very prominent role, for the, particularly the tenor sax for soloing. And I just like the sound. So around 12 years old, I said, we made a bargain. I got two years in, and let's go to uh, the saxophones. And I started there. The truth is, the real epiphany was going to Birdland at 15 years old and seeing John Coltrane Quartet. Or then it was Quintet, which was Eric Dolphy. Mm. And that was a shock to my <laughs> whole life. <laughs> and of course, not, not you know, I didn't cognize that that night, but it was, you know, the beginning of uh, me going to hear jazz, really. And, you know, from there on, things took their own course. Mm. I've never uh, seen John Coltrane myself, but I've certainly heard many uh, recordings. And, uh, yeah, that would that would be a game changer for anybody who's uh, interested in music and had a natural sensitivity yeah. to music. When did you realize that you were going to pursue music as a career? I'm, I, I assume that uh, your exposure to John Coltrane was was more of a, a an artistic and probably even a, a spiritual yeah. epiphany. When did you right. When did you realize that uh, you were going to uh, pursue music as a profession, and how did you start yourself in this? Well, I was playing already at 13 years old. What we call club dates. Mm-hmm. Meaning weddings, bar mitzvahs. I mean, really, I had a band called the Impromptu Quartet, very original name, and uh, we were playing, uh, you know, with tuxedos on dance music. And in those <laughs> days, dance music, at a wedding or something, was not top forty. It was, you know, you played, you played a uh, money hop, you played uh, the, the stroll. You know, you did what you had, you had to jazz. do. Yeah, and and, and and the repertoire were really tunes that in jazz circles were called standards, you know, Broadway tunes, Broadway movies to tunes. So I was already at 13, 14 doing that. But of course, my, my mind wasn't about making a living or having a profession. And when I went to college, which is, you know, how to finish what I started, um, you know, just going to get an education. Uh, the third year, I t- took the summer and went to Europe on my own with the horn. And ended up playing quite a bit because I was just 
a New York musician, kind of exotic. I was 20 by that time, uh, 21. And uh, it seemed feasible that actually you can make a living doing this. So somewhere around late time in college, I thought uh, I might as well give this a give this a try and not any more club dates. That was corny and so forth. Uh, and I got more serious as, you know, I was in my early 20s. You know, then it seemed it seemed viable, possibly. And you know, I got to remember, New York in those days was not expensive. It was cheap. You know, you 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 um, you know, you you could get by on very little. And I immediately moved into a loft, which were industrial areas in New York where you could play all the time. So that was that was my real education. The music was playing. Right? I didn't go for formal training, like I'm teaching to hundreds of musicians over the last thirty mm-hmm. years. Uh, we did it by this, what we call street. You know, you did it by watching from somebody's fingers move and asking a question or two if they would answer. It depends on who it was. Mm-hmm. And you uh, you learn by osmosis. And uh, and the crowd was not hundreds of students like we have now. It was dozens. So it was feasible that you could meet people and hang and have a you know social slash artistic life with a, a variety of different uh, people. Yeah, it was. I would imagine that those were very different times. It was probably uh, easier in a lot of ways to foster and develop the uh, mindset of a of, of a musician. Well, you have to be around people that do it mm-hmm. and who are ahead of you. You know, they're ahead of you online, and uh, that's that was the mentoring system. And of course, you know, jazz had a long history of you know where somebody who was a sideman became a leader. Mm. Put in, you put in three or four years with Freddie Hubbard or Horace Silva, mm-hmm. and now the, the industry, what it was, mainly booking guys you know, and record companies, looked at you and said, well, you earned your stripes, now do you have your own music? And that was what you know, Blue Note had to offer, Verve, etc. Um, the classic records that we all love so much, from, particularly from the 50s and certainly the 60s. And uh, uh, you learn by, you know, asking, watching, uh, observing. Mm, yeah, going out and taking your lumps. So, yes, and 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 the scene was quite small. Then I mean, there were clubs were closing in the late sixties. With you know, when I would say you know, pop music was in ascendance in sixty six, sixty seven. Jimi Hendrix and you know Woodstock and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of eclipsed jazz for a minute. Why? That's why so many. Uh, jazz musicians, especially African Americans, moved to Europe because the work was plentiful there, and the lifestyle was a little bit more equitable. So uh, uh, that you know, by the early seventies, fusion cast another shadow on it and became another thing. But there was a time when it wasn't so. Let's put it this way: you didn't think about that you could make a living. <laughs> you mm-hmm. said you would like you'd like to make a living, but uh, could was another part of the question. You know, conditional tense: I could, I could, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, there's always that problem. Uh, speaking of fusion, uh, uh, you uh, spent some time with uh, Miles Davis during his fusion period. Uh, what was how did you how did that happen? How uh, what was that like? Well, again, the scene was small, and in my building, uh, my first loft on West Nineteenth Street, uh, I had met Dave Holland in London during that sojourn I was describing, and he came to join Miles. And, I said, oh, second floor is open. Would you like to have it? And he, I, we talked to the landlord. He came in there. And then Chick was, uh, I, I think, getting divorced or something like that. So Chick Korea moved into the first floor. So they were with Miles, of course, at that period. And, you know, I meant that there's a lot of backstage kind of stuff, hanging out, seeing Miles, maybe a few words here and there, you know. But, you know, seeing it on a more 
daily level, not as this epic, you know, like Miles Davis, you know, it was like, you know, he was with the guys, you know, and mm-hmm. he had an amazing, amazing band with DJ Net and Dave and Chip. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, he, you know, he, you, you were around the scene. People kind of say, oh, I saw you here before. What do you play? Oh, I play saxophone. Oh, yeah, I guess you want to play a little bit, huh? I said, yeah, okay, go up there and play. You know, it was like very informal and very historic how you got a chance at a jam session to shine, and you did if you could. Mm. So it was a system. The system was a you know mentoring, very unofficial, and very loose. But it was that kind of uh, route that one would take in those days. That you played with a, a leader, and then you were quote entitled to have your own life, musical life. Mm. In fact, I remember uh, during that uh, fusion period of Miles' uh, years, uh, he had uh, Gary Bartz for a while in his uh, in his yeah. band. Gary uh, was that was that. Uh, before you joined the band? Yeah, Gary, well, the, the lineage is Wayne goes into Steve Grossman. Mm-hmm. Steve, Gross, Steve Grossman goes into Gary. Gary goes into Carlos Ward. Mm. Carlos Ward goes to me. I go to Sunny Fortune. And then the break, Miles is breaking in the late 70s. And then, of course, back in the 80s, at my recommendation, he got Bill Evans. Mm. And, uh, you know, and then Bob Berg and... Kenny Garrett, and that's the saxophone lineage for Miles. Mm, cool. Now, uh, you also uh, have a very impressive pedigree as a jazz educator, as a music educator. Uh, you had yeah. uh, you have an honorary doctorate of, for jazz uh, at the Sibelius Academy out of uh, Helsinki, Finland. Uh, you uh, hold Order of Arts and Letters uh, and... Uh, Hold uh, uh, the title of Jazz Master from the National Endowment of the Arts, and in fact, according to your website, uh, it says that uh, you were uh, you're teaching at uh, NYU in Princeton uh, this semester. Princeton was yeah, Princeton was the first semester. That's now as of tomorrow. Actually, I begin my second semester at NYU. So, ah, okay. For this, for this season, I'm at NYU as you know, on uh, visiting faculty. How did you get into uh, into uh, music education? How did that work out? Well, in the 80s, I was a little dismayed by the music scene. You know, we all have our ups and downs in mm-hmm. our life. I was in my mid-30s, and it's what I call it a midlife crisis. But, uh, you know, <laughs> is, this, is this what I want to do the rest of my life? And I already played the Village Vanguard. I recorded. I played with Miles Day. I mean, you know, I had really climbed the tree and could not see, that in some ways, what the future held, except more of the same. Uh, so I thought that I could do a little bit more maybe outside of music. I had certain administrative abilities and uh, so forth. And I tried the Peace Corps and Save the Children and mm. a couple other uh, what do you call it, philanthropic organizations, which, of course, in those days, and probably still true, they want people who are building you know, water wells and uh, agriculture. <laughs> they don't need a tennis saxophone player in the village in Kenya. Yeah. So, uh, um, But I decided that teaching, which had just reared its head in America. It was well ensconced in Europe already from the 50s and 60s. And here it was, you know, Berkeley and University of Indiana and a few places, but it wasn't anywhere like it became. And I could see it writing on the wall that this education thing, which in a lot of ways is what an art form does. It has its explosion of creativity, then it settles down and becomes um, picked apart by the next generation, and then hopefully it evolves into something new. Uh, I could see that it was going to get picked apart, you know? mm. and I I had the abilities to you know write and to verbalize, and I love talking about the music. Um, so I decided, well, I'm not going to you know change the world in the Peace Corps. Mm. <laughs> so, I, 
see if I can change the world one one person at a time in this teaching this and you know very heavy deep music that's uh, uh, has a sort of um, great message. Jazz is a great you know as, a, as an idiom and across the board of idioms in, in the world. Jazz has a great pedigree and. Uh, I decided if I put my eggs in that basket, I might be able to do some good. And uh, this all morphed into this organization that I began in 1987. And 1989 was our first meeting, the International Association of Schools of Jazz. You can see that under my education tab on my on my site. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a worldwide organization now. It's in our 30th year, meeting every year in different city exchanges, etc. I just figured, you know, jazz. If you're learning jazz in Finland. You're in jazz in, uh, you know, Israel. You're gonna all know who Duke Ellington is. There's more in common than there is, and there isn't. And for a force for good, and for unity, and for peoples of different cultures and different races and so forth to get together with jazz as the vehicle for cross communication. I thought that was a pretty hip idea, and we've been pretty successful over these 30 years. So I was able to take my uh, the lead that I wanted to do something. That would have a lasting effect, and I was able to turn it into this organization, which I feel is an important part of my creative life. Hmm. That's very impressive. I, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, I knew that uh, I, I'd done a little bit of homework about you, of course, and I uh, knew about uh, your a uh, uh, little bit about your history about the uh, jazz educator. I wasn't aware of you being in the Peace Corps, though. No, uh, I wasn't in. I tried. Oh, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, my, was my bad. Was my bad. No, what I was saying was that I was trying to do something that would take a different part of my personality, mm-hmm. which was administrative leadership, as which I was good at, and I'd done already. And we'll probably talk about this because it has to do with the uh, organization, you know, our, your, that you're representing. But I wanted to do something that had more, I thought, more effect than the music. And of course, in the end, the music wins. So yeah. I had to take that. <laughs> I, had, I had to give it a shot, though, and you know, see, could, could, could the East Coast take me and save the children? I actually went to Washington and met with the head person because my dossier looked pretty good on paper. And she said, well, you know, you look like you've been very successful in your field and I can understand your wishes to help out in the world, but really we need people. So that was me. I meant earlier, we need people who are, you know, know how to build a, you know, a water well, you know, or whatever they do. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm reminded, uh, if you'll permit me a brief digression, I was, I'm reminded of a, Story of when uh, Bono, the singer of that, uh, that yeah. rock group U2, he yeah. uh, when the, at the height of their success, uh, he felt that he was yeah. getting a little bit of out of touch with the common people. So he uh, decided he signed up to do volunteer work yeah. digging uh, irrigation ditches in uh, Africa. Yeah. And after a couple three weeks of doing that, the uh, village elders called him for a meeting, and he thought that he was going to go there and that they were going to pat him on the back and say, thanks uh, for helping us, you're doing a great job. But what they really told him was that uh, your ditch digging sucks and you're putting us behind schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and uh, then they suggested, look, you're a musician. Why don't you, if you want to help us, why don't you use your music to help us? So yeah. everybody ha- everybody obviously has something to contribute with uh, with whatever skills and everything that they yeah. have, and there is something communal about the uh, the whole culture surrounding jazz and uh, in fact music. Uh, and no music really exists in a vacuum, and uh, right. so you know we take we take what we uh, what we can and uh, use it to uh, help humanity. And, well, uh, you you. Know... 
it's a it's a never-ending pursuit, but certainly in midlife, you want to do something that's meaningful. Mm -hmm. had, if you've been touched by something meaningful, as I was with Coltrane and jazz in general, you know, your job kind of a part of your, well, not job, but part of your work is to spread the word. Mm -hmm. And that's education. That it, that it is. Can you talk? Can you talk a little bit about your uh, your method of teaching? How do you approach uh, teaching uh, groups or uh, or individual students? Uh, well, well, first of all, there are differences between like a lecture when I walk in and do a two hour class and then leave the next minute, uh, compared to like for example NYU next starting tomorrow for the semester. I have ten meetings with them, eight eight me eight four hour meetings. Uh, so it depends on the you know circumstances, but. What I learned as a student was that I thought was important was how to learn mm. and that how to how to individually mold that method or approach for yourself. And by the way, if anyone else is interested, to spread the word again. Um, if learning how to learn is important, so what I try to do with students is I don't teach beginning level. So you know, beginning levels, uh, I have amazing respect and admiration for those who do eleven-year-olds playing the violin. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm. I, you know, it's just not my field because plenty of people do it and they do it great. Yeah, I've I, done it a little it, bit myself, so I understand. It, man. Yeah, I mean, it's real work, real work. It is. And, uh, uh, but, you know, teaching talented, in some cases ambitious, mid-20s type, uh, you know, you get them at a really at a time where you can have a real effect in like what note to play, you know, mm -hmm. or how, how, how to act or something, you know what I'm saying? So I try to you know, give, I mean, I have a lot of books out and a lot of information that's available which uh, people may read or not read, but when I'm live and in person, so to say, I try to give them the feeling that this is how you learn this. You take this home and you do this and you will find something somehow, eventually. So in a way, that's kind of encapsulates what I'm talking about, how I might teach, you know, and then of course it comes down to the individual. And when you go in one-to-one, -one, you have a real chance to get somebody to wake up <laughs> and smell the roses, you know. Yeah, I uh, I noticed that with uh, with my own teaching efforts. I was teaching for a while at a private music and arts school in the Bronx, and I had a classical guitar student. And I'm not a strictly speaking a classical guitarist, but uh, and I knew that this one student that I had, a young Korean kid, a teenager who was really good. He really had the gift. I knew that I was going to have to pass him on to, to somebody better than me sooner or later, yeah. but I'll never forget one lesson. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was playing this piece by Bach that I had assigned him, and uh, he was running through it like a hot knife through butter, and after we were done playing it, I pointed at an F sharp in the uh, piece, and I said, okay, play that note. And so he played it, not a problem. And then I asked him, why did Bach put that there? And his eyes just lit up. I could see that something had opened up in him. And I bring this up to, to say that, uh, like, you know, to underscore what you had said, that, uh, that everybody has their own way of assimilating information. Everybody has their own uh, way of learning and uh, finding that, that inspiration that uh, propels us to continue to do this. Yeah, it's a matter of finding the right combination for the right student. You know, mm -hmm. It's like matching clothes. You know, you match red socks with yellow socks. I don't know. Yeah. Red socks with maroon, you know, with maroon socks, maybe better. Yeah, I don't know. You lost me there. I, I, I don't, I don't know anything about matching colors and clothes. Yeah, well, I'm a fashion disaster you, myself. Yeah, it means it means finding the right, uh, the right 
the right words direction mm-hmm. for that particular student and be different from the one standing next to him. So a good teacher exactly. has several, you know, there's many resources to go to. A good teacher is enabled to go left, right, you know, left of center, right of center, etc. And that's the point is to be able to shift gears depending on the student. This is when you're doing individual one-to-one teaching. Mm, that's how it works, man. Beautiful. And hats off. I mean, in a, big, in a bigger setting where you're doing like a lecture to, you know, like a master class, then it's a matter of information, but mainly inspiration. Mm-hmm. When it's a one-to-one, it's a job. The one-to-one is like, okay, we're going to build this house together. Here's how I would do it. You try this. So mm-hmm. it's a, it depends. As I said in the beginning, it depends on you know the circumstances of who, who, and how many te- is teaching. Really, it's a number game almost. Mm. That's great. According to uh, the many biographies that I've uh, found about you online. In the 70s, uh, you uh, became the president of a cooperative called the, uh, if memory serves me, it was called the Free Life Communication. Um, yes, without the, without the, the it's free, it was free, free life. life. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Free, you, of uh, Free Life Communication. Yeah, can, we, can you talk about how, uh, now I'm assuming that this uh, was something that was connected with both uh, the business side and what we can term uh, music activism. Yeah, and Am it's I a correct? little, little. Yeah, it's a little like what Sarab is trying to do with this organization. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the basic thing was I looked around. We were playing in these lofts. We were playing for each other, mm-hmm. and that was nice. And uh, learning from each other. And at one point, I said, you know, we can't be here forever. We're, we're supposed to communicate. We got to get out into the world. So we took, you know, museums, libraries, wherever we could. And we put on concerts there. Uh, eventually. With my loft as the center of meetings and everything, eventually we had 30, 40, maybe 50, 50 uh, members. And the name was a, an attempt, the name came up with Bob Berg, the saxophonist. The name was an attempt to show, you know, now the influence of that, of the 60s. Mm-hmm. We were not immune to, you know, we were not immune to what was going on in the, in the streets. And, you know, Vietnam, uh, you know, women's lib, uh, the whole racial shit. I mean, blah, blah, blah. You name it. It was happening in the 60s, you know, all all at one time. Mm. And, you know, so we had that moniker to do, which was free life, free about life and to communicate it. Mm. And uh, we looked, we, uh, things came our way. Okay, my way. That there was like a grant situation from the New York State Council of the Arts, which we got a couple thousand dollars. We found a home, a space. It was it was called the Space for Innovative Development. It was a church on Thirty Eighth and Seventh Avenue, I believe, mm. which was uh, Prime which was a redone. Yeah, and it was redone, um, uh, renovated by you know a very rich foundation, uh, and we became one of the groups in residence there for a few years. And it was a beauty. You know, now we're talking beautiful pillows on the ground on the floor. People would lie on a pillow to watch the concerts. Mm. Uh, piano. Steinway piano for one dollar a year. You know, this was a real wow. philanthropic gift to us. We were also in the same building as the, the Nikolai Ballet, and there was another guy named Joe Chaikin who was doing videoing at that time, videotape, uh, artistic video, use of video, which was new at that time, sixty-nine, seventy, and uh, it went on for a few years until the people who started it, among them myself, began to get you know a little deeper into the professional aspect of being a jazz musician and playing with Miles Davis, for example. So we, you know, after two, three, four years or so, it kind of petered out. But it was grassroots, let's organize, and let's make things right for us. Mm. Like what we're doing with with the, your organization. Uh, in other words, you were uh, you were pretty much 
taking charge of the uh, situation. You uh, mentioned uh, producing your own concerts. Uh, exactly, and and records. You know, that's the beginning of guys starting their own records. And records. Very, mm. Yeah, very small, but they you know began putting out records on their own. In other words, we saw that the industry was not kind to us as jazz musicians. There was not a lot of you know money coming down our way. Although the fusion period did have a lot of things going on, it's a separate discussion. But you know, we were playing also the kind of music we were playing was not by a manifesto and not because it was ordered, but it was free jazz. Mm-hmm. It was, it was. I don't know how much you know you know about it, but it was Ascension and cool. It was definitely Coltrane. Oh sure, Ornette, I mean, yeah, spontaneous you know, composition. Cecil yeah, Cecil Taylor. You know, mm-hmm. we were we were really affected by that, which basically was a New York music, more or less. You know, out. Chicago, St. Louis, etc. Mm-hmm. But you know, this is where the center was, and we figured that we're going to play music that's not commercially viable. We might as well have a good place to do it and attract our own audience. And you know, for two dollars, you could come and hear two, three groups play at mm. the height of our existence. Wow, two dollars! Yeah, and those were the days. Yeah, two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet that actually uh, covered your expenses as well. Yeah, of course. Well, different economy back then, uh, but. Uh, yeah, everything uh, changes. But uh, sooner or later, I think uh, that it comes down for every musician that uh, they really have to take control of the of uh, of their own business affairs. Uh, the idea of uh, depending entirely upon uh, somebody else to, to handle all of this stuff is uh, more of uh, the exception than the rule. But, well, um, certainly, certainly now, because the record business is completely decimated. Mm-hmm. And the record business was, you know, the record business was a fuel because it was the way your music reached people. I mean, mm-hmm. you had to deal with the people, and some people were very cool and some weren't. I mean, obviously, Blue Note was a different relationship than you know Columbia Records, but uh, you had to deal with the business because, of, and that's why we started Free Life because we, we were playing for each other, which was, you know, not it was short, you know, short memory span, so to mm-hmm. say. And that, you know, so when you say people take it into their own hands, they, you know, this is a grassroots situation, and that's what you're trying to do with the organization now. That, you know, take try to change the change the station, and you know, give rights to musicians or not rights, but to think uh, opportunities to musicians to perform their music and be paid for it. Mm. That's the second, be paid for it. Uh, what a what a thought, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I you know. know these that's... days, I mean, these days, you know, I mean, I'm playing Smalls tomorrow night. It's a hundred dollar gig. You can't live off of that. I mean, I I have obviously other things, but you know, is that what you're going to pay a 22 year old kid who just got out of college? You know, maybe even seventy five dollars if it's five guys. Mm. You know, so we're, wow. we're back to that. We've always been there, which is musicians in general. People have to help themselves. You know, they have to do that. They have to organize. Mm. That's what you know. That's what that's what Sarab is doing, and I, I you know, I'm very very uh, you know, I support his efforts. Mm. Yeah, he uh, definitely had a had a vision and is uh, running with it. You had done some uh, some uh, workshops. You did a you did a workshop with MFM, and I remember you uh, talking about. S- correct my faulty memory if I uh, if I don't get the yeah. details right, but some uh, difficulty that you had. I believe it was with uh, Arista Records, or uh, you had a deal with them for uh, one of your recordings, and uh, I think that. Uh, to this day, you still hadn't gotten paid for it. Oh, well, that happened all the time. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't ours. I mean, but that was. Oh, know, okay. I mean, compared to Charlie Parker, we were we were you know we were uh, kings of the universe. I think, with those guys, you know, 
they could sell a tune to you for fifty dollars, and that tune would become known by your you you being the author of it, but you weren't. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Famously, uh, Miles is given credit for a tune called Solar, S-O-L-A-R, mm-hmm. which is played by everybody. And the truth is, that was written by a guitar player, Chuck Wayne. Mm. How Miles got a hold of it, we don't know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> some... it, it was definitely done probably in the cover of Night, at the least. Yeah, something something happening under the table. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, you know we've all been there. In fact, I've, got, I've written uh, stuff dates back to the uh to the 80s myself and um you know i found it i heard other groups playing it and i'm still waiting to get paid for some stuff that i did back yeah. then that's right uh yeah that's uh that's uh, i guess that's just goes with the territory we are living in uh in a very different time than uh when you were first coming up with free life communication and uh with uh and with a, your your time with uh, with uh, Miles Davis and with others, uh, the music business, the technology, uh, even the the way that uh, that uh, music is uh, consumed, so to speak, by uh, by the audiences, there seems to be a certain uh, trend towards uh, a devaluation of music. I mean, it's it's gotten to the point where. Uh, Anybody with uh, access to the internet can just uh, do a couple of clicks or hit a touchpad, and uh, they have the entire catalog of music and all of human history right at their fingertips. And uh, how do you uh, how do you deal with this? And how do you how do you uh, see musicians uh, surviving in 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 this uh, in this environment? Well, I hate to be dark, but it is not a positive picture. Um, there's two, there's two polar opposite things happening now. You get the good one first, which is that because of the Internet, really almost because of it, in, if, if only the Internet, the music scene now is as rich as it's ever been. I mean, in a place like New York, you want to hear different kinds of music. Start at 6 in the night until 6 in the morning. You can hear four, four or five groups playing completely different. That was not so true in the 60s and in a certain extent the 70s and 80s. It became... It's a big soup now, and you can take whatever part of it you want, mm-hmm. which is a very good thing. I mean, the jazz, you don't get into this long discussion, but jazz had its hundred years. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was ascendant, and there's reasons for it, and we had amazing personalities like, you know, Miles Davis and Coltrane and so forth. It reached its point of no return. I mean, it was, it had, everything was repeating. And if it wasn't for this world influence and outside influence of the Internet, I think jazz would even be in a worse shape than it is. But artistically, I've, it's definitely the best it's ever been in my career. On the other hand, the business isn't the worst it's ever been. <laughs> so there's, you know, there's no money to be made. Artists are getting paid 15 cents for, you know, 100 airplays. Um, it's really a bad, not a not a good picture, and it means that a young person looking at this, uh, who loves it and enjoys it and and is good at it has to say, what am I going to do when I'm 28 years old or 30 years old? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a, you know, that's a dark picture because this art form could be lost. I mean, not lost, but it'd be like Baroque flute. I mean, probably somewhere in the world, somebody's giving a Baroque flute concert now. Some body, maybe a few bodies, but not anywhere near. A, yeah, a, sw- uh, a few groups, a uh, little, little community yeah. of very, specialists exactly. in ancient but, music. Know, so, yeah, you, you, you know, we're in a specialization world now. You know, you want red socks with yellow socks and same sock, they'll do it. Mm, get um, out the socks. <laughs> and ho- hopefully, 
you know, the, the, what happens is cream rises to the top, and those who are destined to do something will anyway. But the record business, which was, as I, as I was talking earlier, the, the major way that the music was spread out around the world, in some cases, depending on the label, um, that's basically now in the hands of the producer of the record, which is good. I mean, if you sit in your bedroom and you dial up and you do enough work, you can get your, probably get your music 100 hits a day or something like that, whatever that means. But mm-hmm. making a living from it, I don't know about making a living from it. That's That's a rough one. Yeah, I've noticed that uh, with a lot of uh, social media, there's, uh, for instance, there's this new uh, social media platform called TikTok. I don't, have you heard yeah. of it? Yeah. No. I, uh, well, it's it's a it's a thing uh, kind of like uh, Instagram or Facebook or Tinder. But uh, what people do is that they post uh, videos, and the videos are uh, are only a minute long. And uh, I, I I look through it, and I've posted in, in a few of those myself, just me standing on my soapbox. Uh, 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 giving out my opinions and trying to piss off the world, but what they're uh, what there's this passion among these people is that they want to get, and I uh, quote unquote internet famous, and uh, yeah. the question is uh, okay that's that's fine, but uh, it's it's all one gigantic uh, 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 ego massage, e- ego masturbation, and they they get into uh, internet famous they got a mil- uh, couple million people following them and uh yet again you like you brought up uh you know how does how does this uh translate into uh into a professional situation where we're actually uh, able to earn a living doing this or are we just uh, uh having fun and then uh, uh having when we turn it off having to figure out uh, how we're going to pay the bills and survive into right, retirement though. That's and what's how, going on. Yeah, and how this, yeah, and it, it obviously uh, happens with music. Uh, I've, I've, I've got, uh, for instance, a, a SoundCloud account, like a lot of musicians do, and I use it for specific purposes. But uh, I look at some of the other people that are on SoundCloud, and they post their their beats that they uh, or whatever they they do, and they, uh, and some of it is actually quite good. A lot of it is not, uh, but. Uh, Ultimately, it uh, comes down again to that uh, that fact. You know, why are people doing this? And with the saturation of people that have this access to this uh, to a potential audience like this, uh, it uh, saturates the market with all of this uh, potentially superfluous yep. things you that uh, yeah that uh, that uh, draws attention away from uh, more talented artists that are uh, struggling to. To earn a living, yeah, um, we're, we're at a we're at a crisis point, and it's not just music; it's journalism, it's theater, it's certainly movies. Uh, the technology has gone so fast; it's way it's faster than we could ever f- figure out what to do with it. And we're in that kind of wild west mode now. Now, how how long that goes on, who knows? Because every every day there's a new you know a new player. Mm-hmm. But uh, but for the art form itself, it's a it's a problem because you can't decimate your stuff fast enough. And you can't make a living from it. And that's, it's, you know, how, how long can you go on without making a living? I mean, I hate to be straight up practical and sound, sound, you know, too straight for the world. But no, these, the these is, have I to mean, be, these are questions that have to be asked. Uh, okay. It's almost and like we got, I'm, I'm sorry, it's almost like we got to, we got to change our business model that we work under every three years or so. You got it. That's right. That's um, not going to happen. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it can. Uh, maybe, uh, can uh, share your opinion about uh, this, but uh, 
maybe it's uh, uh, gotten to the point where uh, young musicians have to be just as creative with uh, with their business models and uh, with their uh, their approach uh, to uh, the professional aspect of business as they do with the music that they're creating. I mean, you did that with yourself when you when you uh, when you and your uh, colleagues started Free Life Communication. I mean, I'm yeah, sure we were trying we were trying to do it on our own. Yeah, exactly. We and uh, uh, we got, but we got, we got help. We got that space through the phase development. We got a grant. So I, you know, I, I never I don't regret those days. And we actually were quote fairly successful in our grassroots for you know the three four years that we were on uh, you know doing it how did you hear hear about mfm and uh uh what Sir was Rab. the impression oh he he contacted you directly i don't remember how but it, it certainly started with a conversation with me and him somehow i'm, I'm sure and that first meeting maybe i don't know but i i i'm pretty sure it became he got in touch with me or uh, somehow i somehow we communicated I don't remember, and I said, "Yeah, I'll help you. I'll do it like you know, like Billy Harper's doing, and other people. You know, so we support these kinds of efforts. You know." Oh, that's great, man. Well, I, for I personally, I uh, I'm very glad to have you aboard on MFM, and I uh, <laughs> appreciate everything that you've uh, so far contributed uh, with you, with the uh, the workshop uh, with this podcast interview, and I I look forward to uh, you continuing to do great things. Uh, for the I have just a personal. I have a, I have a personal thing. I, Daoud is usually David. The, it's I, a, yeah, it's the right? Arabic equivalent to David. It's my Muslim name. Ah, that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I love Daoud. That's a great tune by Clifford da, Brown. Yeah, you got it. I never learned how to play that on sitar. I should have learned that one. Good luck. Oh yeah, thank you. I'm going to need it. Nice to talk to you, Dave. Thank and, you for uh, your best, for your time, Dave. And uh, to, uh, hi to Sarah. And uh, anytime you need something, let me know. Beautiful. Thanks again for all of your support. Thank you, brother. Ciao. Thank you for tuning in to MFM Speaks Out, the official podcast for musicians for musicians. And thanks to Dave Liebman for taking the time to speak to us. Tune into this podcast for more exciting and informative dialogue with some of the most knowledgeable and innovative men and women in the music business. And don't forget to visit us at musiciansformusicians.org. And we're going to leave you with a little bit of Dave's music.
you are invited to the MFM Public Musicians Forum number 20. The meeting will be led by MFM President and Founder Sarab Sadat Lajavardi and feature special guest saxophone virtuoso Billy Harper. This will happen on Tuesday, February 27, 2020 at 7 p.m. and it will be held at Wingspan Arts in the Film Center building at 630 9th Avenue, Suite 602, New York, New York. This forum will feature topics on a variety of musician and music business-related subjects of interest to members and non-members. All musicians of all genres and the public are invited to attend. For more information, visit us at musiciansformusicians.org. That's musiciansformusicians.org. And don't forget to check out our online magazine at doobydoobydoo.info. That's doobydoobydoo.info.